There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist and this podcast series is dedicated to the discipline of psychiatry, discussing issues that, whilst emanating directly from the discipline, have implications for society generally. The series engages thought leaders from within the discipline and beyond to assist in exploring these issues and providing insights into some of the thinking that contributes to the richness of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. When one thinks of those who suffer from eating disorders, the sufferer comes to mind. But what about their family, parents, siblings, spouses, those closest to them? How are they affected, and what role is there for them in the recovery process? On today's podcast, our topic is living with eating disorders, and I have the privilege of hosting and discussing this topic with Dr. Felicity Marcus and Dory Ann Wheel. Felicity is a psychiatrist, and she currently heads the Eating Disorders Unit at Tara Hospital, a state psychiatric facility here in Johannesburg. The unit offers both in and outpatient care and comprises a multidisciplinary team involving nurses, psychologists, occupational therapists, social workers, and a nutritionist, as well as an on-site school for inpatients. Dory is a clinical psychologist and a former member of the multidisciplinary team in the Eating Disorders Unit at Tara. She is also responsible for some pioneering work in radio as Dr. D., And I had the pleasure of being a guest on her show on more than one occasion, as well as joining her as a guest on television talk shows. Felicity and Dory, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Now, I I chose the title of today's episode in terms of living with, to capture the lived experience, not so much of the sufferer, but more specifically the lived experience of loved ones who are witnessed to, affected by, and involved with the sufferer, the burden of these conditions. Before we get into our conversation, just a few introductory comments. The American Psychiatric Association, in its wisdom, with the publication of the DSM-5, that is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, renamed the category of conditions we used to call eating disorders as feeding and eating disorders. And aside from the two major conditions which will be the focus of our conversation, namely anorexia and bulimia nervosa, they included a few other conditions too. So, When I refer to eating disorders, these are the conditions I'm referring to, namely anorexia and bulimia. But I suspect that whatever is discussed today will have relevance for all of the conditions within the category and probably for other psychiatric conditions too. Personally, I think that eating disorders are quite possibly amongst the most challenging of psychiatric conditions to treat and truly test the clinician. And for loved ones, they represent a scenario that bewilders, angers, scares and at times overwhelms as the sufferer is consumed by their beliefs and behaviors and relentlessly pursues their goals. Goals that, if left unchecked, will destroy them in full view, in plain sight. Have I overstated the case, Dori? Absolutely not. I think that it is, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a very difficult um, illness to go through and just as difficult to live with. And the kind of... Um, dilemmas that people have it's not overstating when you watch someone you love in front of you and from your point of view the family point of view seemingly consciously destroying themselves and you feeling helpless in the wake of it and not knowing what to do vacillating from being very angry because there's a sense of just do it and let it be under your control 
to feeling desperate because at the back of your mind or sometimes at the front, the person is really ill, puts everybody in a kind of a dilemma. So I don't think the case can ever really be overstated. Felicity, your thoughts? Well, Prof, I'm, I'm so glad you've actually decided to do this topic because I think especially at Atara we deal we deal a lot with the families. Um, we see, as Doria is saying, the the impact it has on them. Um, and that's why when, when we treat the patient, we're not just treating the patient, we actually, we provide family support because it's just so important. Um, I think a lot of families don't know how to treat their, their loved ones. They don't know about eating disorders. They don't know about the impact. And I think they, they do suffer along with the, the sufferer. Yes, and I think very often it takes a while for the family to really understand mm. what is going on before they eventually act. But I think Doris said something very important. Mm. There's a destructiveness that one bears witness to, and yet the sufferer is not intending to necessarily or at mm. all destroy themselves. They're, in fact, intending to lead a better life or to find some kind of happiness or peace or contentment. So it's it's really interesting in, in, in that sense. But, Felicity, you've, you've, you've mentioned families. Dory has touched on that. Mm-hmm. And I want to specifically turn to families and loved ones, and as I said, who, who bear witness to the unfolding pathology. And I want to look at what role they play. So my own view is that when I assess the family, which I believe is critical when you work with adolescents or young adult females who are resident within the family, and those would comprise probably the majority of of, of sufferers, but not exclusively so, I think it's essential to understand the context of the sufferer, the relationships. And I think something that's also very important for me is that we don't um, judge the family on the status quo because it's often very difficult to tease out cause and effect. So I'm, I'm personally more inclined to be thinking how families move forward to heal without looting sight of where they came from. I'm interested in the path they walk to get to this point and how do we go beyond that. So Felicity, maybe you might mm-hmm. want to comment. So I think it's it's always important to remember how complex eating disorders are. Um, I think they're both internal as well as external factors that that always contribute to suffering from anorexia or bulimia. And especially when it comes to the family system um, and the environment, it's very important that the family also engages in a form of change, um, in a form of almost healing um, with the patient. So... You know, they really need to understand what the eating disorder is and where it came from right. um, and what in the environment is, is also contributing to it. And I think, like you said, a lot of families, I think they're in denial. I think they mm. don't realize, um, you, you know, what's, what has been occurring in the home environment. Yes. Um, and that's where it's very important to give them insight um, and to guide them so that they can support their loved one. Okay. Um, and also that the patient will have the best outcome going forward. Okay, so I'm going to come back to the assessment process mm. in terms of Tara. But, Dori, your comments um, in that respect. Yeah, I think it's very important. Look, families definitely do go through it, and they go through it initially. I agree that there's a lot of denial initially. And then when that kind of dissipates a little bit, there's guilt mm. as well that comes mm. out of that denial. You know, what role have I had got um, played in it? And I think that going forward from that, in terms of the treatment and the intervention, 
it's just so important for the families to be held and to be joined with as well Mm -hmm. and for them to begin to understand themselves because there's a tendency to blame Mm -hmm. for them to then blame themselves. And I think that if the whole treatment is going to be relatively successful, it's a partnership of understanding how this has happened, you know, wanting to know how those kind of sometimes deep dynamics can be influenced because they're obviously they just kind of developed. You know, you talk about in the, when that eating um, orders disunit started Felicity many, many years ago, there were very common kind of beliefs about the families of um, eating disordered patients. They were almost sort of inviolate until we started seeing more and more and more and more, not everybody fitted the mold. So I remember right in the beginning with that early literature, the way we used to talk about enmeshment and an enmeshed family, most particularly it usually was between the daughter and the mother being over-involved with each other. Then it made it quite clear that the statement of the development of an eating disorder was an assertion of independence, and that's what we knew. And then more and more through the development of the understanding of eating disorders, certainly in our unit and all over the world, we started seeing so many exceptions to that rule, but began to definitely understand that there's always a story, and that story is idiosyncratic. It's the reflection of something very, very often in the family. So I agree with the huge, huge influence. Not always the same dynamic. It could be to keep families together. It could be to assert yourself. No, it could be for recognition. So, so there were all different kinds of things. And the task, and the task that Chris, you're talking about now is what is it about? Where does it come from? from all of those points of view internally and externally, which then gives an understanding of the development of insight which will inform the intervention going forward. I think that's very important, you know, and and, and I sort of put that under the broad rubric of context. So I always want to see what is the context of the individual sufferer. And people are often ask me what are the causes of eating disorders and I've got my typical refrain where I say as many sufferers as I see that's as many causes as I find because I think each sufferer has their own story each family has their own dynamic and I think that's exactly what Dory is saying and the sort of early theorists had kind of held that the family was they, I think they spoke about psychosomatic families it was the Italians Salvini Palazzolo um and Mnuchin. So there was a very specific theory of eating disorders that was deeply connected with the family. Listen, the truth of the matter is eating disorders emanate or come out of families, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily implicate the family as causative, but certainly they are part of the system from which it's emerged, and therefore we do need to, to understand it as a system more fully. I think one of the other issues, and, and, and Dori touched on it, was this whole issue of blame. Mm-hmm. And I think that is that is often very difficult because one has to be careful that I think as a professional, you don't get into that inadvertently. There are obviously things that one will see that need to change, and so that's more how I tend to frame it, what needs to change, as opposed to you did this, therefore that happened, and suddenly it becomes a he said, she said, and there's lots of finger pointing, and I don't know that that's particularly helpful. But I think one of the emerging 
um, trends from a treatment point of view. And in fact, uh, it came out of the Maudsley and involved um, a South African psychologist, Daniel Rhansi, who was involved with uh, research there, looking at family therapy for anorexia nervosa and specifically looking at family therapy within the context of adolescent uh, anorexia nervosa and the issue of family structure and parental authority and boundaries and, and hierarchy. So maybe we could unpack that a little bit more. Felicity, I'll start with you and then Dori can jump in. Mm. So I think I'm going to, I'm going to use Tara as an example. Yes, of course. Um, <laughs> that's where my base is. Absolutely. Um, but I think you, you're completely right. And just to kind of start from the root and when you're talking about blame and, um, you know, people just not understanding the eating disorder. I find a lot of the times when the patients come into the unit um, and the families are, are very much, you know, why can't they just eat? Why can't they just, you know, um, stop exercising? And there's there's such a lack of insight. Um, so the first step is really to, to educate the families, to really make them or help them, I should say, help them understand what the sufferer is experiencing. What are they going through? Because it really is... Um, a mental illness. It's an illness where they don't choose to have it. Um, it's something that, unfortunately, they, they are they are struggling with. And unless the families are on board, um, it becomes very difficult to to treat the eating disorder in totality. Um, so, I think for for families to to really work with um, with the sufferer, with their loved one, to try to overcome the struggle. Um, and for them to realize it's, it's, it's them against the eating disorder. It's not the family fighting an eating disorder. They need to, um, help their, their loved one fight and, and deal with this eating disorder. Um, so in our unit, the, the, the parents in particular or, um, the support structure will receive, um, counseling, inside counseling. They'll, um, have quite a few one-on-one sessions with the social worker just to, to really get an understanding. And I think, like you're saying, Prof, they, <clears throat> there need to be boundaries, there need to be rules, there needs to be a way of, of talking to a person suffering from anorexia um, or bulimia. And only really once um, the families are, are quite well equipped with the necessary skills um, and insight can one then start the family therapy um, and really make ways in terms of, of changing or, or shifting um, kind of um, viewpoints um, and really getting to the depths of where in this family system the the amount of issues arising um, or issues that are coming up for um, the person, the sufferer. Um, I think a lot of the time we know that eating disorders are a form of control. Mm-hmm. Um, as mentioned, they are multifactorial, but mm-hmm. what control, and especially in your family system, is is, is a huge uh, contributing fact- factor um, as as. Dr. D said, um, the enmeshment as well. Um, so only once we get to the depths of those issues um, can we start moving forward um, and really, you know, be on the road to recovery um, in terms of the the, the sufferer and, and the people um, supporting their loved ones. So it's quite a process, actually, and I think that that is something that is really important in terms of preparing the families, that it is going to be mm. a process. It's, 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 it's not simple it's not straightforward and there are depths there are levels you know which which really need to be drilled down and unpacked on our these are kind of jargonistic phrases Mm. but i mean that's literally what one is doing Mm. and so there's the superficial behavior which is well come on 
just stop just, it yeah, just and easy. do that. <laughs> and yet it's much more complex. Dory, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded, I'm just listening to this, of all of these multi-layers, and I'm really resonating with you, Felicity, when you say that some of those kind of layers and dynamics – um, the, the idiosyncratic ones of the patient need to be understood quite a lot before you start with the family therapy because family therapy was the flavor of the month along and you used to just want to start with it straight mm-hmm. away mm-hmm. Uh, before that kind of understanding. And I think that there's much, much more studied, you know, much more a lot, uh, um, sort of horizontal approach be, is, is, far better because when you say that the, it's a disorder and the person doesn't want it, they actually want the behavior sometimes. Mm-hmm. You see, they don't want you to stop the behavior. They don't want the effect of the behavior. They don't want the – the. it's never brought them. They, they realize that this behavior isn't bringing them their fantasized, fantasized desired outcome. Their fantasized desired outcome is – if I behave like this and look like this, A, I'll be in control and then I'll be happy. And they have to go through this by seeing that they just you they do more and more of the same and more and more of the same. And the hopeful outcome absolutely doesn't work. And then they begin to realize the way of getting to the goal of not feeling so conflicted being recognized, assuming independence and control because that control issue is so central to it, that passive-aggressive element of I'm not going to scream and shout at you, although sometimes I do, and tell you what it is, but I'll show you because I will be in control of my body and I will take what I want into my mouth. How can you get that need for saying I want to be in control of my life, more functional mm. and less dysfunctional than this. So all of that is highlighted and begun to be understood by the person before that's communicated and also understood from the family point of view because what they're doing is with the very best intention. Mm. They can't see if you just don't put more food into the person's mouth that they're going to they they really just going to be better. You know, it's just much, much more complicated than that. And they get into that power struggle that we know so well. And I think what's really important there is to understand that specifically, let's say, within the context of anorexia nervosa, weight restoration is one aspect. Mm. And weight restoration doesn't seal the deal because what we are being very specific about is that there are are layers of complexity yeah. that underlie that. And of course, one of the big issues that, that I find with, with, with families is, is, is hostility. You know, hostility from mm-hmm. the sufferer towards the family, hostility from the family towards the sufferer, because the family don't understand, the patient isn't doing what she's supposed mm-hmm. to do. So how do you, Felicity, approach that kind of hostility? I mean, that's something that I see. I'm not sure whether you share the same experience, but how do you approach that in the clinical situation? Yeah, so no, I think it it is something we see quite often. I think, especially as the disease um, progresses, um, I find that the the sufferer becomes even more invested in it. Yes. Um, they kind of hold on to it for, for all the reasons we say, and the control, the secondary gain, the attention, and it just it creates such um, 
dynamics and, and poor relationships, unfortunately, within that family. So that's why I think the family therapy is is really beneficial because you can really get to the root um, and really understand kind of the underlying emotional turmoil that's going on um, behind the behaviors that we're seeing. Because mm-hmm. I think as as Dory said, it's, it's a lot of time it's the behavior, but that's that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's not really yes. what's um, what's driving this eating disorder. Um, so I think it, it is very important for um, families and and the patients to have that space um, where it's done in a very kind of therapeutic way, and they can really um, engage in what um, you know w- what's going on and. Um, the, this issue of blaming or this issue of resentment, um, and really get to the core of of how to how to manage it and how to deal with with their frustrations. I find it very helpful when you have the whole family in front of you, yes, and you start looking at the interactions. Yes. So, for example, even where the child sits or the sufferer sits, do they sit to the one side of the parents? Mm. Do they sit in the middle of the parents? And when there's something contentious that comes mm. up, who do they turn to? How do the parents engage with each other? How do they engage with the sufferer? So one sees so much being played out in front of you and that's why it is so important mm-hmm. because that really does give you a first-hand view of how things are potentially playing out on a bigger stage outside of your office yes, uh, sorry. yeah sorry yeah dory sorry sorry no 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 I'm, I'm agreeing with you chris because you see a thin slice you know right in front of you in the room is a thin slice and wherever you go there you are so you're seeing mm. a thin slice of that kind of interaction and those dynamics in front of you. And you can decide as the therapist, depending on where the patient is at and, you know, where you're at in the family therapy, whether you want to work in vivo. And you can point that out right in front of the mm. family, in front of you. Let's just take a look at what's happened now. You know, look who you're talking about so-and-so, but you've got your back turned towards mm. them. And you're talking to so-and-so. I wonder if that's what happens sometimes at home. And when it does, you know, how do you, how does that make you feel about it? And then you see the kind of dismissiveness or the cut-offness or whatever the dynamic is being played out and the, and the family can actually experience that right in front of you. Having said that, I just want to, because I don't want to lose the thought, mm. I remember there was a head of the, unit felicity that you're in for many many years his name was dr dave norris and he did quite a lot of pioneering work in south africa on eating disorders and he used to say to us as the psychologists don't create me bulimics with insight said we've got anorexics with insight you sit and do all of the dynamic part and the precipitating factors and the maintaining factors and what's happening in the family they still got the behavior mm-hmm. so hence he was quite um, good on doing the kind of dual approach making sure that that behavior was addressed in terms of eating in terms of rules and guidelines in the unit which i'm absolutely sure still exists not leaving that part at all because it was also the belief that you needed to be either at a certain weight or a certain level of nutrition to even be able to deeply invest and use mm. the therapy that was being offered at the same time. I think what he was getting to ultimately is that insight is one thing. 
Changing yeah. behavior is another. Mm-hmm. And I think, mm. you know, one often has yeah. patients who've had the condition for many years. They've got all the insight mm. in the world, but they are still fearful. They are still right. anxious. And so getting them to change is really difficult. And I think that's often a very frustrating issue for family because now the sufferer knows, they know, everybody has got it, but nothing's changing. And I think that I just wanted to touch on something. When you've got the family interacting in front of you as a therapist – to retain neutrality mm. and not to get sucked into the family system that is unfolding in front of you where you find yourself, you know, getting into it as opposed to observing it and just kind of reframing it and directing it in a more constructive mm. way. Felicity? Yeah, so it's funny you say that, Prof, because I think we see that very often in the inpatient unit where the family tries to suck in us as medical professionals into their dynamics. And even the patient themselves on the wards will display behaviors that I think are probably quite typical in the home environment um, to, you know, to, (laughs) to voice themselves. Um, And you, you really do as a professional, you need to set quite strict boundaries. Um, There needs to be structure. There needs to be rules um, because otherwise you, you're not in your, the patient or the family any good to just um, be absorbed into into those um, <laughs> those relationships. Absolutely, and yeah. it's very easy to get sucked in, and I think that it does require and and and, and that's why it's very important to be versed in eating disorders mm. when you work with eating disorder sufferers to understand the kind of pitfalls, the therapeutic pitfalls that um, that that do exist. And I think obviously with time and experience, one one becomes more au fait, but certainly in the early days it's 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 not easy dory what's your sense been for therapists yeah i think that it isn't easy you know if therapists come in there obviously their own motivation is to be of extreme assistance mm-hmm. and um we in the in the in the service of extreme assistance, they often want to deeply connect and join uh, and understand and be empathic and listen between the lines, Mm. which is all very good. But on the slight other side of that, you can get an inadvertent collusion. Yes. That happens in in the therapy. I'll go along, but I don't, you know, they, they've bit too, um, resistant to sit or to even see sometimes that necessary boundary which would be really useful for the person to see and understand about their own behavior and about what they're doing when they start doing it with you it's a great opportunity to say let's just stop let's look at this see what you're doing and that what you're hoping for And that also might be what's happening Mm -hmm. outside of our therapeutic Mm -hmm. room. And also you have an opportunity there to show that if you don't go along with what the person wants or collude with them, doesn't mean that you don't understand Mm -hmm. them or care about them at all. You, You have an opportunity to make a clear distinction of support and understanding and going forward and finding more functional ways with better outcomes without going along with some of the dysfunctional and destructive behavior both to the family and to the person. And it's an important, the, the, the patient can then begin to see you, the, the sufferer rather, that kind of distinction. Well, I think what's really critical is the requirement that therapists are honest. 
And I think that requires a certain level of security in one's own capacity as a therapist and a certain level of bravery where you're going to engage the patient honestly and Basically, to dovetail with what Dory is saying, show them how honest communication can lead to better outcomes. Because, because yeah. I often think that communication is an issue with, with eating disorder sufferers. And in a way, it's, it's, it's about helping them find their voice mm. and that it's not something that is necessarily going to cause problems if they learn how to communicate more effectively what their needs, what their desires, what their dissatisfaction might be. When it comes to parents mm. So But I want to come back to the parents And this issue of mother versus father <laughs> Because I think that that is often You know When I assess a, a, an eating disorder sufferer And I'm sure it's the same for you Felicity in, in, in the unit I like to see both parents Yes for sure Because I want to see exactly who's who in the family <laughs> And I want to see how mother and father Understand the situation Because very often We don't have two parents on the same page And just coming back to something you'd said earlier Everybody has to be mobilized Against the illness Not against Mm. each other Yes, and I sure. think that's very important So what's your experience in terms of mothers and fathers? <laughs> so my, my experience is that you They're usually on different pages um, You usually have the one parent That is um, colluding with the eating disorder right. Trying to support them um, And then the other parent Who wants to strict um, Wants to set those very strict you know, Boundaries and rules and, and, and try to deal with the eating disorder And that immediately creates um, um, Problems within the family Another thing I also wanted I know you're talking about mom and dad But yes. you mustn't forget the siblings No, 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 I'm going to come to the They're siblings Because siblings, I'm siblings come to also siblings. play quite Absolutely. a big role yes. But um, mom and dad have to be on the same page Because if they are not The eating disorder itself Is, is a master mm. of um, manipulation It's a master at splitting Yes um, Especially it loves splitting um, parents And it will use that to its advantage So unless those parents are on the same page Unless they're talking the same language um, and unless they are supporting their loved one in the same way, it's very easy for the eating disorder to to take over and to get what it wants. Yes, I always say that. You know, when 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 parents are split, the eating disorder marches straight through. Yes, for sure. And, and that's how it works. Dory, your your thoughts? Yeah, I um, absolutely agree. You know, I think that you talk about the function of the symptom or, or the function of the disorder. There's got to be, there's often some sort of an investment, usually to do with this is my person, not your person. My mother is more joined with me than she is with you, although she might be your wife. In that way, also showing a kind of an upper hand, whatever, but some sort of reason. I've also seen it another way that, um, that there's been a dynamic of not wanting to get better because if, 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 Maybe not consciously, but if I give up this eating disorder, my parents are going to get divorced. Mm-hmm. Or my disorder keeps them together right. because they need to be there because I, they can't focus on their dysfunction. They haven't got time right now, thank you very much, to focus on their dysfunctional relationship. They've got to focus on me. You know, I'm not well, and as parents, that's what their focus has to be. So there can be that um, side of the the um, symptom as well, which I think is is, is very yeah. important to identify because really there we're mm-hmm. looking at the the illness as a basis for involvement, mm-hmm. and surely yeah. you don't want people to only be involved with you because you are ill. So mm-hmm. how do you then acquire that involvement in a functional way and let how- go of the illness? 
That's, I think, to, you know, um, Prof, that's the actual real answer. We want to look at what the person is missing mm. and how to get those needs met. So the first stage often with them, you know, a lot of there also were very typical descriptions of the kind of people who had eating disorders, whether they were bulimic, they had a different kind of personality or anorexic, another kind of personality. You know, we've got to look at, at what the, what the function of that is and a sense of personal entitlement. Mm. The first thing with, with them and then that leads to the family is an entitlement to have a look at what my needs are. How do I understand them? How do I, and then the next step is how, what I'm attempting to do to have them met, yes. which is dysfunctional. Mm. But sometimes you get a dysfunctional equilibrium. In other words, what they're doing isn't healthy and completely dysfunctional, but it's keeping the family on the on the kind of even. They all know their roles. Yes, I'm the this one. I'm the that one. It's not functional, but there's a kind of equilibrium. When you help the pe- the person become more more um, functional, the family often goes into a disequilibrium. I don't know this role. Too well. Mm. You know, I'm not used to being supportive of my husband or wife. Mm. What's kept us going is behaving in this kind of way. So there you see the reverberations throughout the whole system and the importance of treating the whole family, as you're saying, you know, to, to, to get to a functional equilibrium rather than a dysfunctional equilibrium. Equilibrium as as the treatment continues. No, I think that's very important. And again, you know, it just emphasizes that it's a process. Mm. There are no quick fixes, and to get to that level of insight, awareness, and ability to actually act in accordance with insight and awareness is a process in itself. Yes. So I think that you know one can safely say, when it comes to families, mother and father both need to be involved, mm. and we need them to be on the same. Page, And I think a lot of the work that we do with families is also to empower the parents to be what they need to be in the situation. Because very often there is fear on the side of one or both parents that if they do this, then that is going to happen. And they can't quite bring themselves. And so parental empowerment, I think, is a very important component in terms of the therapeutic process. What would you say, Felicity? <clears throat> I know I completely agree with you. I think if you if you don't target the parents, um, you're not going to win the battle. Mm. And I think um, to treat an eating disorder in isolation is actually quite dangerous. Yes, mm. because if you think that you are going to weight restore and weight maintain, and that the patient is going to um, be on the full path to recovery, I think it's 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 quite a misconception. Um, you you have to target. The, the patient as a whole in a holistic manner and that includes the families the parents um, it's the only way to really win win the struggle and win the battle I must say no, what, what I want to say one thing sorry in yes. the service mm. of that and it's just a one sentence in the service of that I think that it's quite good to, to let the pa- the parents know that although they're not on the same page, right, in terms of the behavior, there's fear of loss of love if I put mm. down boundaries, mm. they won't like yes. me that much or, you know, whatever it is. I think that it's very, it's, it's, it's comforting to start off with them to say, you know, 
I think that you are on the same page because we won't, we both have, we all have the same desired outcome. Yes. yes. You would like this person to get better, wouldn't yes. you? There isn't one mother or one father who says, no, I wouldn't. I want them to continue like this. Absolutely. You know, then they, they will state that from the beginning. And then we talk about how their behavior is maintaining something that they know they haven't realized that, but, but in the end, Proves to be not in the interests. Mm. Yes, of absolutely. The patient, of sure. the patient. Yeah. Yes. So, so for me, it's always about working towards parental cohesion. Mm. How do we yeah. get the parents to be cohesive? And so that is in itself another parallel process mm. that is taking place within the context of working with the patient. Yeah. So that treatment is not only seen about what you do with the patient, but it's also seen in terms of what you need to do with the families mm. and to bring that kind of cohesion and overcome often what is a sense of powerlessness in the face of a very powerful illness. And I must say that very often the daughters become people that the families just don't understand mm. and don't recognize as being their child in mm. terms of mm. their fiercely destructive determination to pursue mm. these, these goals. But I wanted to touch on the issue of siblings. I mean, the, the sufferer, really does consume the resources mm. and dominates the environment. They're very powerful in terms of taking center stage, which is interesting in itself if you want to interpret that. But very often there are siblings. Mm. What happens to the siblings? Because I must say, I seldom see the siblings, but I often hear about them. <laughs> so, Felicity, I know that you wanted to touch on siblings. So let's talk about those who are affected, potentially seemingly feel forgotten because they're seldom mm. seen, and they have their own emotional issues, anger, concern, resentment. They have their own mm. issues. So, Felicity. Yeah, I must say, sometimes I feel quite sorry or sad for siblings. I think they can get lost um, in this whole kind of situation. Um, and I think it's important for us not to forget them. Yes. It's important to include them in this family therapy. Um, obviously, um, you know, it, it depends on their age and, and where they're at. But very often, I think, like you're saying, Prof, they, they, do, they don't know what's going on themselves. Um, they see maybe it's a, an older sibling that they've looked up to, um, who's now suffering, who they've witnessed restricting or, or purging, and they don't know what's, what's going on. So it's very important for us to support them because I actually think they're also quite at high risk of developing their own issues. Mm. Um, and especially with, uh, you know, like you say, in the, the eating disorder or the, the sufferer using up all the resources in the family, yep. um, they, 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 yeah, they get quite lost. They lose the attention of the parents and then they start acting out. Yes. So uh, when we, when we talk about families and when we talk, when we're looking at supporting, we really need to think of everyone, um, in order to, to make sure that, um, no one kind of, gets left behind or no one is, is suffering. I just think it's quite difficult to bring siblings into the room with parents and sufferer because yeah. now you've got too many voices. Dory, what, how would you go about, uh, you know, dealing with, with, with siblings? Is that a parental issue that you empower the parents to do that? Because I also wouldn't want to have a situation when I don't like a situation where I inadvertently become a therapist for the sibling mm -hmm. when I've got the patient in front of me. And so how do we tease out all those roles and how do we get everybody to where they need to be? Dory? No, I think that it's another one of these things that happens, um, that there isn't the exact formula mm. in the treatment and intervention of eating disorders. I think that it depends, and the family specifically, what the situation is. You know, sometimes just listening to what Felicity is saying, you know, I mean, there, there, there seems to be 
a difference between the way that these siblings handle it rationally and and emotionally rationally depending on the age they say to themselves they need to step back they need to in a sense become parentified children a little bit mm. we've got to look after our parents who have enough on their plate they don't need me and my needs and my whining so that they tend to kind of block some of what they really need and feel guilty about it emotionally. I've seen quite often, in fact, I'm dealing with it now historically, the, the sibling of an eating disorder person who is much more grown up now has found some very poignant notes, very, very poignant little letters that absolutely reflect her saying, um, I will be good. I won't worry you. I know there's enough on your plate. You know, um, I am, I'll be, I'll, I'll in a sense become the one that doesn't rock the boat, you know. Mm. Um, I mean, and if you pick that up early, of course that needs to be dealt with. And I think can be dealt with quite well in the family setting as well, because then there's an awareness that happens, a gentle awareness. A supportive awareness from the therapist that can be offered and understood to the whole family. So I think it just really depends what your statement about empowering the parents to deal with the other person, I think is very, very, very important. And you might not have to bring them in, but it would be understanding that there are other siblings there mm. as well. The amount of time and dominant, uh, focus. On the eating disorder person, which doesn't necessarily mean that the siblings are are not entitled to what they need from their parents as well. So it would be an assessment. Should we bring them in? What would be the purpose? What would be the desired outcome? And can that need be met? What's yes. the best way of meeting? Because very often there are sibling issues yeah. actually that uh, underlie some of the eating disorder behavior and the evolvement or, or the evolution and, and, and development mm. of, of an eating disorder. And so very often one does end up talking about sibling relationships yes. as much as parent-child relationships. Um, Felicity? Yeah, I just want to uh, – you just brought to mind, especially I think um, in twins. Yes. Um, and the – Person or the sufferer wanting to create their own identity, their own sense of self. And a lot of the time, um, we see, I think, particularly with those kind of relationships, um, the issues coming up and they need to be addressed. Um, yeah. Even, yeah. even, even in situations where one sibling is ostensibly more successful, more yes. attractive. Absolutely. Uh, you sure. know, I mean, and, and, and I often find that, and I, and I don't want to, I, I got to be careful what I say here, but I often see it. In families where there are two daughters mm-hmm. And often yeah. there's <laughs> You know yeah. And each one has their own special And unique skill set And attributes mm-hmm. But yet for some reason Often the sufferer doesn't see it that way And so I often find myself Working with sibling issues That have existed And now the eating disorder has arisen And it's not the fault of the other sibling, mm-hmm. nothing to do with them. It's all residing within the within the sufferer. So I think that issue of, of of competitiveness between siblings often actually comes to the surface once you start to scratch a little bit and get into the family context. I don't know what your experience has been, Dory or Felicity. Sure, I think that this is very very important. You know, when I was talking about the parents and the the children, but the siblings, the siblings amongst each other. You know, there's often that, I think I absolutely agree mm. what you said. 
um, a way of outdoing the person. And what I can do, just watch me. I can be thinner than you. Right. Yes. I have got more discipline than you can't. You put a pile of, you know, deliciousness, whatever it is in front of you. I bet you when I come back in an hour, it won't look the same. You, I can make it look the same. I'm stronger. Yes. And this is the one area, one, where I am inviolate. And, you know, and and I will show you. It's my thing. Yes. It's my thing. And if that, you know, you can see the investment in giving up your thing. Because then what else is there? So, of course, that involves the, the, the siblings very much and directly. And so that is why I think it's so important to really, I keep emphasizing it, get the context. Yes. But I want to touch on another issue, which I think can be quite contentious in the older sufferer, the spouse. Because there I often find myself uh, contacted to say, listen, my wife has a problem. Okay, so we'll deal with that. But then in the course of therapy, the wife realizes that some of her problems have been also choices that she's mm -hmm. made. And it creates a problem in terms of the dynamic in the marital situation. And to what extent do you see sometimes that spouses collude? With the problem or a part of the problem, mm. so just a just a question that I'm throwing yeah. out there, Dori. Yeah, I mean, um, once again, you know, when you these kind of thoughts just trigger actual examples of this that I've seen and dealt with over the years, where the husband has definitely colluded with it, most definitely, because what it means is that he keeps her not well. Mm. In a way, and makes it difficult when she has a lot of difficulty in socializing, and it enables him to go out. Yeah. So he goes out, he meets with his friends, she isn't well, she stays at home. You know, I'll pay the bills, more than pay the bills. I'll support you virtually in what you want in the shops, you know, but, but the kind of underlying little message is don't, you don't have to intrude in my life too much. And the way that I see that that happens is you can't because you're not well. And so go shopping and stay at home. So I think that that often becomes a problem in terms of therapeutic intervention because you're busy mm -hmm. empowering the sufferer mm -hmm. who then turns around and says, hang on a sec, what am I doing in this relationship? And then you get the spouse contacting me to say, what the hell have you done to my wife? And I'm saying, I haven't done anything. What she's done is she's come to see certain things and to reassess what is important in her life and how she wants to move forward. So, I mean, that has been some of my clinical experience. I'm not sure what's happening in the unit or so, what you've seen. So I think my, my experience has actually been the other side of the coin okay. where it becomes an ultimatum where, where, you know, you gain weight or you give up this eating disorder or I'm leaving you. Right. And then it's, it becomes quite dangerous because then the, the sufferer is now the motivation's in the wrong place. So the motivation is to get better so that I don't, you know, I don't have to lose my marriage um, instead of the motivation being that I want to get better. I want to overcome this eating disorder. And I think it also becomes very tricky when there are children involved uh -huh. and the impact it has on young children. And I think I've seen that in the units very often. Yes. Um, for, for very young minds to, you know, be witnessing what – um, whether it be well, most likely the mother, but yes. what the mother is is going through and her struggles with eating, and I think it then maybe distorts their 
um, into their perception of um, sure. of food and behaviors. Um, so it becomes very complex. I think. So I think when it comes to spouses, for me, there's either collusion or confrontation. Yes. And yes. it becomes an ultimatum, as you said. Mm-hmm. If you don't change, I'm getting out. But then the question is, is change taking place mm-hmm. for the right reasons? So I think spouses add a whole other dimension to this concept of, of looking at the sufferer and the burden for those beyond. I think what, what for me is very clear is that, is that family therapy and family involvement is, is, is very important in terms of eating disorder sufferers, both in terms of what the family experience and the role that, that they can play. And certainly for family therapy, I think the therapist needs to be non-accusatory, non-judgmental, there's no blaming. We're always looking at what needs to change. So just some closing words maybe from you, Felicity, and then you, Dory, on on, on the role of the therapist just in terms of what I've said. Mm. So I I agree with you, and I'm I'm actually really glad. I mean, I know I I took over from the eating this morning unit, but um, I'm glad that we do have the family approach. I think it's, um, it's, it's vitally important in managing eating disorders. And I want to just say to, to people that maybe do have a family member suffering from an eating disorder that they shouldn't themselves be scared to seek help um, and support Mm. and don't think that, um, they, you know, that, um, they just need to travel this journey on their own because I think if they need their own therapeutic space, if they need to consult with their own doctors or treating team, um, you know, it, it will only benefit their loved one in the long run. I think that's very important, Dory. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I like Felicity um, saying this will only benefit their loved one and them in the long run. Mm. Because sometimes what people are crying out for, faced with a sense of complete helplessness and understanding is, okay, we're also going to talk about not only how it affects you, but maybe what you can do to assist in a situation. They like to feel a little bit more empowered, you know, um, and 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 directed in that way or another, so they see themselves. You know, it's not they might not be the identified patient, but in it together, and playing some sort of a role in dealing not only with the patient, but you know, certainly the ability to address some of the effects that it has on them as well. So I agree with everything that you, you've said, Felicity. And think it's very very true. Well, I think that um, we've come to the end. Dorian Felicity, thank you for sharing of your time, knowledge and experience and obviously the road to recovery is challenging but in my own personal experience most sufferers will improve and can go on to lead lives that whilst not necessarily completely free of some of the concerns and behaviours they will be sufficiently recovered for them to lead more fulfilling lives and for the loved ones your burden is understood and the lessons learned from the healing will hopefully contribute to a healthier family life and a greater capacity to to deal with struggle. So I'm going to leave us with a, a line from Charles Bukowski, one of my favorite poets, and from his poem, Love Poem to Marina, and I think these words are quite important. Daughter, right or wrong, I do love you. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of BRAVE.